Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, we began a new series last Sunday in 2 Thessalonians. I'd love for you now to take your Bibles and turn with me there as we pick up where we left off last week. And as we do so, we understand that the background to 2 Thessalonians was found in what took place in the book of Acts in chapter 17, where we find that there was a man from the Thessalonian church by the name of Jason. And Jason evidently had a very strong impact ministry-wise in that region, identified by the accusers, by the oppositional forces. He was aligned to the teachings of the Apostle Paul and to Silas and Timothy, aligned most significantly to the work of Jesus Christ. He was thrown into prison. The governmental officials thought this was justice. Biblically speaking, it was an injustice. And we've got to understand that everything that a government does in the name of justice is justice. Because throughout this world, what some would call justice in the eyes of God is an incredible injustice. So now, what we need to do is to understand this whole matter of the justice of God. We're going to see its bearing, of course, upon the cross of Jesus Christ. But what we're going to do is to link together the first and the second comings of Jesus. Link together the cross of Jesus Christ where justice and mercy can simultaneously work themselves out ministry-wise. And that gives us a perspective that is necessary to understand that final day, the day of the Lord. We pick it up now in this first chapter. And we're beginning here with verse 5. We're going to take it down through verse 10 and understand what it is that God is doing in this world, will do in this world. This is evidence in verse 5 of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. There is so much here. And I'd encourage you, stay focused upon each and every word in these verses, each and every phrase in these verses. What you're going to find is that 
the teachings here are such that he will carry, Paul will, a thread of thought like a weaver on his canvas or her canvas. And it's visible to the eye, and then all of a sudden it's concealed from the eye, and the thread then reappears a little later. And you've got to follow this thread. There are actually three threads of thought that we're going to have to work with to fully understand the significance of what he's teaching as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, these are challenging days. Sheboygan County has experienced challenging times. We need to remind ourselves that we, are, we have a sovereign God who's at work even when his plan is not fully revealed, even when his ways are not fully understood, even when the outcome awaits to be fulfilled. You are our God, and we are your people, entering into this world as we have sinful by nature, we look to the one who was sinless in his nature, who died as our substitute on that cross for our sins. And we begin to see the connection between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ and the bearing that it has on the in-between time in which we live almost suspended in time as we will between first and second comings as we seek to sort out the meaning and the purpose of the events of life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. No matter what the issues that are being confronted here, no matter the trials and the difficulties of life that some have experienced here, what we're going to do now, Father, is to lay everything at the cross of Jesus Christ Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. Again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. It was during his 1960 presidential campaign that John Kennedy would often close his speeches by telling the story of Colonel Davenport, who was Speaker, Speaker of the House, the Connecticut House of Representatives, where in 1789, Kennedy would have told us, that the sky was darkening, storm clouds were approaching, and some of the representatives were glancing out the windows, trying to process what's coming their way. Some, in fact, even feared the end was at hand. So quelling a clamor for immediate adjournment, Davenport rose and said this in front of the reps. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, 
I wish that candles be brought in. When you and I are attempting to interpret the signs of the times, it's incredibly important that God find us on duty. And even when your days seem incredibly dark, you need to light the darkness with the candle of the gospel and allow it to begin to illuminate the lives of those around you. And this is what the people, the believers, in particular in the setting of Thessaloniki, were called to do. There was incredible persecution that was developing within that setting of the Roman Empire. This setting about 100 miles south of Philippi. This setting uh, next to the Aegean Sea, positioned in the Ignatian Way as a main trade route between the east and the west. And how they would live out their faith would be a story that would be told both to peoples who were making their way eastward as well as people making their way westward. And likewise, if you are willing to live your life for Jesus Christ in the midst of your trials, whether it's going eastward or westward, no matter what the situation might be, from the east coast to the west coast, the story is to be told of the way in which people are living for Jesus. There are three significant certainties here that believers have got to be able to embrace in verses 5 through 10 that help you and help me to fully understand how to be well prepared for the day in which the Lord will return. The first certainty, we're going to put like this, number one, that regarding Christ's return, note with me the repayment that will be made. Now, you're going to spot on the screen that these verses are like that thread that appears and then disappears. Appears in verse 6, disappears in verse 7, reappears in the second portion of verse 8, and again in verse 9. And this thread of certainty pertains to God's justice as it relates to the unbeliever in general and the oppressor, the one who inflicts and afflicts suffering upon the believer in particular. So in verse 6 now, as the Thessalonians are wrestling with what has happened to us, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, We thought that God, sovereign as he is, might produce this sense of refuge for us. Instead, our persecutors have found us. Jason has been thrown into prison. Affliction seems to be the norm. Where are you, God? Which might be a question that various people throughout the world are even asking at this very point. But the people of all three services this morning dig into God's word and are able to provide some answers with certainty to the questions that people are posing. So now I want you to look at the way in which God deals with this oppositional force. And you pick it up now in verse 6, and it's very dramatic. Since indeed, that's a certainty. It doesn't say since possibly. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction, 
those who afflict you. Hit the pause button. Now, what we have to bear in mind here is that God and God alone is the one who is truly and holy and sufficiently just. You and I see the injustices of this world. There's a tendency among humanity to turn to government and view it as their God, and then to feel let down election after election or ruler after ruler because they hoped to see injustice addressed. But what they did not see was justice in their governments. There is one so holy righteous government and one so holy righteous governor to address the matter of ultimate justice in this world. And so now he gets to be the one that defines justice in an unjust world. Since indeed God considers it just to repay. Now, what we've got to bear in mind at this point is that God, at the cross of Jesus Christ, addressed the issue of matters pertaining to justice. Here, we find that Jesus Christ experienced injustice on that cross, addressed to the whole matter of true justice, and then would die in our place so that we might experience mercy, mercy from a God, a God who would offer grace and mercy in our time of need. Now, we bear this in mind then when we consider the significance of what Paul, for example, wrote in Romans. And in the book of Romans, in chapter 12 and in verse 9, Paul himself would pen these words, in fact, in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. In other words, not yours. God is speaking here. Vengeance is mine. I will. What? Repay, says the Lord. He's speaking of that future day. That very same word is utilized here now in verse 6. Since indeed, he's speaking with certainty here, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, the natural human tendency is to say, uh, vengeance is mine, speaking of our self, though we are sinful by nature, and so we need righteous, holy vengeance to be addressed, and God times his vengeance for that day. Now, parents, you might remember Judith Vior's book. It's the children's book, I'll Fix Anthony. That's about the younger brother complaining about the way his older brother treats him. Brother's name is Anthony. My brother Anthony can read books now, but he won't read any books to me. He plays checkers with Bruce from his school. But when I want to play, he says, go away or I'll clobber you. I let him wear my Snoopy sweatshirt 
but he never lets me borrow his sword. Mother says deep down in his heart, Anthony loves me. Anthony says deep down in his heart, he thinks I stink. Mother says deep, deep down in his heart, where he doesn't even know it, Anthony loves me. Anthony says deep, deep down in his heart, he still thinks I stink. When I'm six, I'll fix Anthony. When I'm six, I'll float. But Anthony will sink to the bottom. I'll dive off the board, but Anthony will change his mind. I'll breathe in and out when I should, but Anthony will only go glug, glug, glug. When I'm six, my teeth will fall out and I'll put them under the bed and the tooth fairy will take them away and leave me dimes. Anthony's teeth won't fall out. He'll wiggle them and wiggle them, but they won't fall out. I might sell him one of my teeth, (laughs) but I might not. Anthony's chasing me out of the playroom. He says I stink. He says he's going to clobber me. I have to run now, but I won't have to run when I'm six. When I'm six, I'll fix Anthony. And meanwhile, the Apostle Paul has something to say about these issues. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will what? There's that word, repay, says the Lord. And he couples that now with what he wants the Thessalonians in their time period of persecution to fully embrace. Since indeed God considers it just to what? Repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now you look at that at that point and you realize then that God is holy, God is righteous, God is good, and God times his interventions for his purposes, for his glory, times them in a way that is in the best interest of all involved, and that is something that the Israelites in the Older Testament would have to fully comprehend as well. Because as God said to Abram, In Genesis 15, verse 15, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But listen to verse 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, he has got all the atrocities of this world, such as ISIS, all the atrocities of this world measured, and they are on his timer. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And with regard to the timing of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Amorites, he would say to Abram, is not yet complete. 
And so what we find here is that life is timed. And we are waiting for God to reveal his timing and his purpose for his glory. And sometimes we feel as though, God, you're on the clock and you're delayed. When in reality, the world is on God's clock and the delay that seems to be so present in our mindset is not a denial in God's mindset. And so the Thessalonians are looking for relief, and God is speaking with certainty here now, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. But now you take that needle and you thread this canvas, and you bring it back up here to the surface. And as you bring it back up to the surface in verse 8, what you will find now in the second part of verse 8, he goes on to speak of this whole matter of repayment. Inflicting vengeance on those, now notice, upon whom? Number one, those who do not know God. And number two, you're still in verse eight, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Camp on that. Those who do not know God, the word know here carries it with the idea of an intensely personal relationship with God. Question, does that mark your life? Is God an abstraction in the midst of your days? Or is there an intimate relationship with God through your days? The highs and the lows. The challenges and the difficulties. Not everything is a mountaintop experience with God. He even walks people through the valley of the shadow of death. So notice here, it is pertaining to, first of all, those who do not know God. And second of all, it pertains to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Again in verse 7, and you say, but Gary, you continuously, week after week, as does John and Bennett and Aaron speak of the whole idea of salvation by grace through faith. And here it speaks of obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you pause that for us? Let's do our best. Salvation, salvation here is what we receive from God. The gospel is what we obey. That's part of God's plan for your life and mine. Salvation is to be received. The gospel is to be obeyed. Paul himself would help us to understand that. One of the greatest statements of the gospel is found in the first seven verses of the book of Romans, my favorite book of the Bible. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. 
I think it's unfortunate that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the Gospels. I think all 66 books are the Gospels. Because the Gospel is God's entire redemptive plan and activity from eternity past to eternity future. If eternity even has a past and eternity even has a future. But what we've got to bear in mind here at this point then is that there are two distinctives about this oppositional force to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ where we are told God inflicting vengeance on those who, number one, do not know God and, number two, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Salvation is to be received. The gospel is to be obeyed. During the Franco-German War of 1870-71, Herbert Bosch tells us two unexploded shells were found near a house. And the homeowner cleaned them up, put them on display near his fireplace. Bad move. A few weeks later, he showed these interesting objects to a visitor, and his friend, an expert in munitions, suddenly had this incredibly horrible thought, what if they're still loaded? And after quickly examining the shelves, he shouted, get them away from the fire immediately. They're as deadly as the day they were made. Now, what we need here is to be believers who are experts in munitions. We need to be able to communicate here the certainty of this whole matter of the repayment plan pertaining to those who have not put their faith and trust in the one who died for the sake of their sins so that they in fact would not have to repay. Because you and I are informed this in verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Mark this. There are two distinctives of eternal destruction in verse 9. Number one, away from the presence of the Lord. And number two, from the glory of his might. Now notice the word eternal here. There was a trendy period about 20 years ago in which some in the fringe of the evangelical circles were arguing for the idea not of the eternal but annihilation where it was a temporal ruination and then they ceased to exist. During those days, I was in charge of ordination councils of the Evangelical Free Church of America out east. And I had to travel to Pennsylvania to conduct an ordination council. And we were in our fourth or fifth hour. This poor pastor was wearing down. And we had reached the point of eternal destinies. And so the question was posed, how do you address the idea of annihilationism in light of God's word? I got the hunch that he was spiritually stammering at this point in his soul as to how he would address it. 
I looked out over the audience, and a professor as well as a pastor in his 60s, a seasoned vet, had their hands raised almost simultaneously. And when this man was struggling with how he would address that issue, the seasoned pastor said, have you considered 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, where it speaks of eternal destruction? At that point, though moderator, I had to say something. And so to help this young man to further along his theology, I said that the Greek word for eternal here is aeon. It is the very same word that is utilized in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have aeon, everlasting life. And so the matter of eternal salvation is matched by this whole matter of the eternal destruction In other words, simplistically speaking, heaven and hell simultaneously are spoken of in the 66 gospel books as eternal. And you say, well, this is hard stuff in this age of tolerance, Gary. One of my professors in both master's and doctoral programs, D.A. Carson, puts it like this. The Christian gospel is solidly based on some elementary notions of repayment. Where evil occurs, it must be paid back, or God himself is affronted. If God forever overlooks evil, ostensibly on the ground that he is simply a loving and forbearing God, Is he not also betraying the fact that he is pathetically unconcerned about the injustice of this world? The truth is that every Christian who has thought long and hard about the cross of Jesus Christ begins to understand that God is not merely a stern dispenser of justice, nor merely a lover who lavishly forgives. But the sovereign God, who is simultaneously perfect in holiness and perfect in love, his holiness demands retribution. His love sends his own son to absorb that retribution on behalf of others. The cross simultaneously stands as the irrefutable evidence that God demands repayment and cries out that it is the measure of God's love, as you and I ponder Romans 3, verse 21 through 26. You see, simply put, if this is not eternal, then really and truly, what Jesus did on that cross was unnecessary. But the holy, righteous God is wholly righteous in both his justice and his grace, not one to the exclusion of the other. And because of that, we've got something to understand here with regard to the way in which God views that final day and the oppositional forces that need to be addressed. Addressed either at that cross with Christ as the substitute, first coming, or in that future day when they themselves, the denier of the substitute, will find that they themselves will experience justice 
second coming. Regarding Christ's return, you note with me, number one, the repayment that will be made, but now you couple that, because this is your God, as balanced as he is in his holiness and in his righteousness. Then number two, regarding Christ's return, you note with me, furthermore, the relief that will be experienced. Verse 5. Now he turns his attention to the persecuted ones. In Thessaloniki then, throughout the world, believers who are wondering how much longer, God, today. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You raise your hand in the classroom of God's theology course and you say, What's the evidence? And then you ponder what we covered last week. There were four distinctives that were to be part of your life and mine that would provide evidence that we belong to God in the midst of the trials of life. The blessings of salvation in verses 1 and 2. The growth of faith at the beginning of verse 3. The increase of love in your life in the second part of verse 3. And you, you, an example of perseverance, even in the midst of the trials of life, of verse 4. And now you look at this and you consider what the Thessalonian believers were experiencing. And he's saying, I see four evidences, minimum, already of you belonging to Jesus in the midst of the trials of your life. You're an example to all of us. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Which means that no matter what you are experiencing in life, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are to provide the fourfold evidential testimony that you are worthy based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ of the kingdom of God. We considered this story years ago, illustrating the kingdom of God. Before the colonialists imposed national boundaries, the kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement on taxation in their border areas. Laos and Vietnamese kingdoms, separate from one another. Those who ate short grain rice, built their houses on stilts, and decorated them with Indian-style serpents were considered Laotians. On the other hand, those who ate long grain rice built their houses on the ground and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons were considered Vietnamese. Listen to this. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined to whom he belonged and where he belonged. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose beliefs and values he was a citizen of, and the beliefs and the values that he or she exhibited. In the midst of the trials of life, believers are to exhibit kingdom values and to show what we are to be worthy of on the basis of the worth of Christ's finished work on that cross. This is the evidence spoken of in verse 5. And you say, okay, I'm providing the evidence. I'm doing my best in the midst of the trials. But man, could I use some relief? Well, we keep drawing our thinking from God's word, don't we? 
You saw the word repay for repayment, our first significant certainty in verse 6. But notice that the word relief appears at the beginning of verse 7. And to grant relief. Relief to who? Relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus is revealed. And you say, well, God, what do I do in the meantime? I'm not experiencing relief. And I haven't yet seen this sense of repayment. I see injustice. I'm clinging to the cross. I'm waiting for the repayment. But when has all this come together? Uh, Speed it up on the Amorites around me, Jesus. But then we think of a man that Pam and I heard years ago speak at a church that I interned at in my 20s, where Alistair Begg is senior pastor today. Tortured in prison by brutal guards in a communist era. And he said that he learned, he learned from the guards. How he was asked. Listen to this. As they allowed no place for Jesus in their hearts, I decided I would leave not the smallest place for Satan in mine. It's not so much what life does to us as it is what life reveals about us. That's of highest significance in the trials we face. Thirdly, regarding Christ's return, note with me the revelation that will be provided. And you say, where do you get the word revelation, Gary? In the second part of verse 7, after he has this lead and unto grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed. There it is. Now you're asking still the question, and how will he be revealed? And there's a threefold response, and your grammar teacher will love you for this. Notice the three prepositions of Jesus here. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, number one, with his mighty angels. Number two, in flaming fire. Number three, and Paul, so steeped in his Older Testament, would have in the back of his mind this incredible statement from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We're weary to fire. This culty is weary to fire. You and I have been thrust into the whole matter that fire consumes. It overwhelms. 
it leaves lasting impressions upon the heart and the mind that are indelible, not readily and easily erased. And so now you begin to think of the significance of this in light of what God is saying at this point. That when the Lord Jesus is revealed, he is revealed from heaven. Number two, he is revealed with his mighty angels. He is revealed, thirdly, in flaming fire. And you pull it all together, these strands, these threads of thought, where in verse 10, you now look at this, stare it down where it reads, when he comes. When does he come? On that day. And you say, well, Gary, give me a hand here. When is that day? Best I can tell you is that we're one day closer than we were yesterday. But he comes with a twofold purpose in verse 10. Look at the two twos. Number one, to be glorified, not merely among his saints, but rather to be glorified in his saints. He's to reside in you. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The second two, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And now the Thessalonian believers are given that sense of when the Lord does come. And this present 2016 era, we're given the sense of when the Lord comes, he will come to be glorified in his saints, not merely among his saints. Number two, to be marveled at among all who have believed. And you ask, why? And the answer is because we put faith and trust in Jesus. You're part of the born-again family if you know Jesus relationally. Because he adds, because our testimony to you, past tense, was believed. These are believers, as he writes to a Thessalonian church. The question is, are you a believer as you worship God? in this free church. So quelling a clamor for immediate adjournment, Davenport rises, and then he says this, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. And we light a candle in the midst of the darkness of this world. But we keep on keeping on doing our duty of telling humanity of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's stand together. Thank you, Father. The cross has a way of clarifying and defining that justice and love are not in a contradictory 
competing, conflicting relationship. They are wedded together at that cross where the sinless one died for the sinful ones. And the story has been told and there is a period at the end of the sentence it is finished. For those, Father, that want to put a comma rather than a period in there, equip us to be able to explain what is found in these verses. Justice has been addressed. Grace has been delivered. May we stay focused upon the one who died in our place for our sins. Equip the people of this church this week to explain this in this confusing world in which we live. And may our faith grow deeper. May our love, Father, be greater. May the result be that you're honored. In Jesus' name.